0: To the Monterey Podcast. For more information, check out our website at montereychurch.com. Well, let me also welcome you and to all of the dads in the audience. Again, happy Father's Day. I suspect that all of you who are fathers would echo what I'm about to say. One of the greatest joys in my life is being a father, and one of the greatest challenges in my life has been being a father as well. Uh, But we say all of that in a context where we gather to worship our Heavenly Father, who is a perfect Father, who longs above everything else uh, to be in relationship with us, for us to be His sons and daughters, and we celebrate that together every Sunday. As we gather to worship, let me invite you to join me for just a few seconds of silence and then I will lead us in prayer before we step into a study of God's Word this morning. Let's just be still and silent in the presence of God for a moment. God, we do honor you as our Heavenly Father. A father who loves us graciously and tenderly, a God who is faithful to us, and as your sons and daughters, we likewise pray that we will be people of faithfulness as we serve you and as we serve others. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. From Hebrews chapter 4, for the word of God is alive and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. If you're joining us for the first time today during this series, this is the third week in a little series that we have titled Living and Active. The Word of God is living. The Word of God is active, teaching us, at times correcting and rebuking us, but above all, breathing life into us. And so, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, uh, throughout the summer, we're going to be exploring a number of texts that I pray breathe life into us, that encourage us, that challenge us in our walk of faith. Uh, Today, I want to take us to the book of Genesis, primarily to the story of Joseph in Genesis chapters 37 through 50. But let me set the overall storyline of the book of Genesis before I step into the story of Joseph. Uh, The first 11 chapters of Genesis, as you will recall, uh, the first 11 chapters take us from the story of creation to the beginning of the story of Abraham. Uh, One way to describe those 11 chapters is to say that the author has on the wide-angle lens there is an overall framework that is being built during those 11 chapters that help us to understand uh, the rest of Genesis, that help us to understand the rest of biblical history. Uh, Many of you have heard me say this on numerous occasions. When we look at those 11 chapters, uh, there is this paradigm, this framework with a number of pieces, including at least these four. One, we are introduced to God. God who is creator, God who is powerful, and God who above all longs for relationship with us. Secondly, we are given hints as to how God looks at creation. Creation is good. And at the heart of creation is humanity is created in the very image of God. Again, created for relationship. Third, sin enters the human arena. Uh, Through the story of Adam and Eve, the story of Cain and Abel, the story of Noah and the flood, and the story of the Tower of Babel. We see the devastating consequences of sin. Relationships are broken. Chaos and heartache occur. And we continue to see that happen over and over, even in our lifetimes, as sin penetrates into our lives. But fourthly, God steps back into each of those stories in Genesis 1 through 11 and extends grace, extends promises, including the promise that is made to Abraham after the story of the Tower of Babel, that Abraham, who has no children at that point, would have so many descendants that they would not be able to be counted, and that ultimately through his descendants, all people would be blessed. The promise ultimately fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah. And so that overall paradigm, and then this punchline, and this question, The punchline, the storyline of Scripture, again, is that God is faithful. God is faithful to His promises. The question is, are we willing to place our trust in God? Are we willing to place our faith in God? That was the question for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God who had created them, who had placed them in this beautiful garden, who had said, outside of you not eating from the tree in the middle of the garden... It's there for your blessing, for your enjoyment. The question was, would they trust God or would they presume to be gods in their own rights, not trusting God as they should have? And the question remains. It obviously is there all the way through those 11 chapters. It is there in full force as we begin reading the story of Abraham in chapter 12. And so in chapter 12 of Genesis, if you would allow me to use the camera analogy again, the author takes off the wide-angle lens and he begins to zoom in. We're introduced to the story of Abraham and his family. 39 chapters that focus on Abraham and his family. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and all of the other men and women who are part of that mix. If you know that overall storyline, you know that the two largest chunks of of text. in those 39 chapters are those chapters devoted to Abraham, chapters 12 through 25 primarily, and then the chapters devoted to Joseph, chapters 37 through 50. Again, I want us to focus primarily on Joseph today. We'll allude to his father for a bit. But as we focus on Joseph, I want us to jump to the end of the story, and I want to read from chapter 50. And so hear these words from, from Scripture. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father, Jacob, was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all of the wrongs we did to him? And so they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. And then the brothers say, Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And so then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. And then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath. And he said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. And so Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. One of the reasons I love reading Scripture is because Scripture doesn't pull any punches when it tells the story of humanity. Scripture cuts to the chase. It's honest. It's transparent. At times, it is downright raw. But Scripture tells it like it is. The story of Abraham, for example, both his good moments and his bad moments. Just like if it was the story of our lives, there are pieces that we would prefer not be included. And yet Scripture tells us the full story. Even as we look at the story of Abraham and the families that follow the dysfunctions that are often there. For example, imagine the life of Jacob for a moment, the father of Joseph. He and Esau are twins, sons of Isaac. Jacob is given a name that means the deceiver. And that plays out throughout his life, pretty characteristic of his life for at least the longest stretch. He cheats his brother out of his birthright, out of his father's blessing. And then he runs for his life back to where his family had originated, back to the home of Laban, where he will ultimately marry Two women, Leah and Rachel, where he finds himself on the other end of being deceived. And I hope you know the story of Jacob well enough to know something about the struggle he has with his faith. In fact, when he finally decides to go home to face his brother Esau, uh, the battle at the Jabbok River with this godlike character, where he ultimately will affirm that his faith is his faith, not just the faith of his father or his grandfather. Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife, and yet she was barren. Jacob had 10 sons before Rachel finally gave him a son, a son we know as Joseph. And as you recall, Joseph was the son that Jacob favored above his other sons, creating jealousy, giving him, among other things, a beautiful coat. And so the other brothers are jealous Flip the switch for a moment and think about Joseph. Can you imagine what it's like to be 17 years of age? That's about the time we are really first introduced to Joseph. Dealing with family tension, dealing with jealousy. That's really where we see the story of Joseph pick up. And so imagine for a moment that you are at one of those significant transition moments in your life, and maybe you are there today. It may be high school graduation, it may be time to leave home, it may be time to celebrate the fulfillment of dreams and to anticipate what the future holds. In fact, maybe like Joseph, you've had a lot of big dreams and you wonder how will those dreams play out. And as you talk about those big dreams, there may be folks even in your family who think you are crazy, just like Joseph's brothers thought he was crazy because of how his dreams would play out in their lives. And so the jealousy is there. But if you're like Joseph, you're 17, the future looks bright, the excitement of new challenges and new opportunities, all kinds of possibilities. And then before you've turned around a time or two, your brothers have sold you to a caravan of traders, a caravan of merchants, who ultimately will sell you to another man in another country. Because of the treachery of your brothers, you've suddenly been yanked away from your home and your country. And while you don't know it yet, your brothers have convinced your father that you've been killed by a wild animal, and he will grieve for years. The deceiver has been deceived by his own sons. And now you, Joseph, have a new master, in a new country. He treats you well. In fact, he ultimately puts you in charge of his entire household. But it isn't long before his wife begins making sexual advances on you. When you reject her, she makes the accusation that you tried to rape her, and you're thrown into prison with little hope of getting out anytime soon. That's the story of Joseph a story that some of you have heard a hundred times over from the time you were a little boy or little girl in Sunday school. With all of the variations of the story, Joseph's relationship to his brothers, the sexual temptation, his time in prison, his release from prison after he interprets the Pharaoh's dreams, his role in Egypt during a time of famine as he is exalted to the second most powerful position in the entire land. His interaction with his brothers when they come to Egypt to buy grain during the famine, the reunion with his father Jacob, and ultimately the entire family moving to the land of Egypt. You know the story. But let me be theological with us for a moment this morning. Uh, Theological in the sense of how do we think about God as we look at the the story of Joseph? And so let's be theological for a moment. I want us to step into the story of Joseph at at least three different places and talk about how Joseph looks at all of what's going on in his life beginning with chapter 39 where we're told again that this caravan of merchants has sold Joseph to Potiphar who's one of Pharaoh's officials in fact he is the captain of the guard God blesses Joseph Potiphar puts him in charge of his household entrusts to him everything he owns these words from chapter 39. Joseph was well-built and handsome. Again, scripture tells it like it is. Joseph was a handsome young man, well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused I think that story reminds us that sexual temptation has always been around and it's certainly a part of the culture in which we live today. Scripture over and over again challenges us to honor the marriage relationship, the relationship between a husband and a wife, and to avoid sexual immorality. In this particular setting in Genesis 39, the scenario is a married woman and a single young man with Potiphar's wife seducing Joseph, tempting Joseph. And here's what I want you to notice. As Joseph says no to sexual temptation, Joseph doesn't say to Potiphar's wife, well, what if we go to bed together and your husband walks in and catches us? Joseph doesn't say, what if we have sex together and you get pregnant? Joseph doesn't ask her, have you been tested for sexually transmitted diseases? Joseph says, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Joseph's often been described as a role model, as a hero for young people when it comes to his commitment to purity, and and rightly so. But I want you to notice the reason Joseph gives as he says no. He sees the bigger picture. God is at work in the story. Joseph honors God. And as we think about choices and decisions we make in life, there may be a number of us in this audience, if not all of us, who need to make a variety of decisions in our lives right now to be pure, to be holy. It may come to decisions regarding drugs or alcohol or sex or language or money. Decisions we need to make, not because we might get caught, but because we value our relationship with God. Move forward a number of years, and let's step into Joseph's life again. Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph he's thrown into prison. He is forgotten about for a period of time, ultimately interprets the Pharaoh's dreams when no one else could, is released from prison, placed in a significant leadership role by Pharaoh during a severe famine. His brothers come to buy grain. Ultimately, the entire family moves to Egypt. And we step into the story again with the pieces I read earlier. When Jacob died, when the patriarch of the family dies, Joseph's brothers are fearful that Joseph still holds a grudge. And with their father now dead, they are fearful that Joseph will retaliate because of the way they mistreated him all of those years ago. Fearful that he will retaliate. And so they said, and I paraphrase, Dad said to tell you to forgive us. Now, I'm going to read between the lines for just a moment. And sometimes I get in trouble when I do that. But I'm going to read between the lines for just a moment. The brothers said to Joseph, Dad said, forgive us. Well, maybe Dad did, maybe Dad didn't. But that's the story they come to Joseph with. Dad said to forgive us. And we likewise are asking you to forgive us for how badly we treated you all of those years ago. And as we watch Joseph's response, there are so many pieces we need to catch. Joseph does forgive, but I want you to notice his language. Again, verses we read earlier from chapter 50. Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? In other words, I'm not the one who brings ultimate judgment. I'm not the one who brings whatever consequences you may face because of your sin. I choose to forgive He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. In other words, no matter what happens to us in life, a lesson we all need to learn, no matter what happens to us in life, good things, bad things, harsh things, God still has the power to be at work. And even through horrific events in our lives, bring good. God is able to work. And so don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children and he reassured them, and he spoke kindly to them. Just like his response to sexual temptation, where he is a role model, so also he is a hero in this situation. He forgives his brothers. He doesn't retaliate. He treats them with kindness. But notice again, Joseph sees the bigger picture. Joseph sees God at work and connected with that with the brothers again fearful that Joseph still held a grudge, the question would be, can you imagine what that would have done to Joseph all of those years if he had held on to a grudge? How that would have torn him up inside? How that would have influenced so many pieces of his life? And so again, maybe there are some of us who need to let go of some things, recognizing that when we hold grudges, when we refuse to forgive, Most often it does us more harm than anyone else. And then a final piece, as we step into the story of Joseph. Joseph is near the end of his life. Words that I read again earlier. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath, and he said, God will surely come to your aid, and then, here's language, you must carry my bones up from this place. And so Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. God makes promises, and Scripture and life affirms again and again that God is faithful to his promises. The question is, do we trust God? God had made promises in the book of Genesis, promises beginning with Abraham, that Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel, would one day live in the land of Canaan, that in the midst of all of the other things that would grow out of God's promises, the coming Messiah, for example, that Israel would inhabit this promised land. Joseph believed that promise. To the point that he said to his brothers, when I die, hang on to my bones because I want you to carry me to the land of promise. Fast forward a bit, two verses that you may be aware of, but if you're not, two verses in scripture that are so significant. The first one comes from Exodus chapter 13. As Moses and the Israelites Leave the land of Egypt, that great exodus event. The text tells us that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. Because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath, he had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. And then at the close of Joshua's life, Joshua has led the people of Israel across the Jordan River, conquering the land of Canaan. And Joseph's bones, the text tells us, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt were buried at Shechem in the tract of land. notice the tract of land that Jacob, Joseph's father, had bought for a hundred pieces of silver all of those years ago from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. This became the inheritance of Joseph's descendants. Joseph is leaning into the promises of God even after he died. He's a hero of faith. But the real point is Joseph saw the bigger picture. God had made a promise, and Joseph trusted the promise. He knew that God was the true hero in the story. That God was at work in history, that God was taking history somewhere, and he wanted to be a part of it. And the question still lingers for you and me. God is taking history somewhere. Triumphal conclusion we're confident of because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the question is, do we lean into it with faith and with trust? And My challenge today as we reflect on a story like the story of Joseph is indeed to lean into the promises of God and to trust God with every fiber of our being. Let's stand together as we sing.